Emperor Akihito has formally abdicated and delivered his final public address as emperor. It is fortunate that I have been able to perform my duty with profound trust in and respect for the Japanese people for 30 years. Japan's new emperor Naruhito has addressed the nation for the first time since becoming a monarch. Hello, welcome to Japan in Focus. I'm Eleni Salters. Coming up, host cities for the Rugby World Cup have been urged to prepare for thirsty fans. It relates to beer and specifically the fear that there might not be enough. And Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says he's prepared to meet the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un without conditions. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says he's prepared to meet the North Korean leader without conditions. Pyongyang had previously criticised Mr Abe for raising the issue of Japanese abductees, those who were kidnapped by North Korea in the 1970s and 80s, ahead of US President Donald Trump's meetings with Kim Jong-un. Now there are reports Pyongyang may contact Japan after Mr Abe told reporters this week that in order to resolve the abduction issue, he will need to, quote, face Chairman Kim without conditions. For more on these developments, I spoke to Stephen Nagy, who is a senior associate professor at the International Christian University in Tokyo. After the Hanoi summit um, between President Trump and, and Chairman Kim, that there was a really a change in the calculus within Pyongyang that you know they're going to have to find new ways to put pressure on the United States to come back to the table. And one of those is to reach out to regional leaders and try to, to um, form dialogue and extract concessions from other uh, parties within the state. Now, we've already seen that with um, Chairman Kim meeting President Putin in Vladivostok uh, late last month. And I think this reach out to um, the Japanese and Prime Minister Abe is and decreasing um, the criticisms against Japan is really part of a larger strategy to put pressure on on the Americans to come back to the negotiating table and and work out some kind of negotiated settlement in terms of a process towards denuclearization. And this potential change of sentiment comes a day after Prime Minister Shinzo Abe expressed willingness to hold a summit with uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Why this move? What's the end game here? Well, again, this is a change of sentiment, but it's not a change of tactics, but it's not a change in sentiment. I think the track record of um, of the North Koreans is very clear that they would like to get economic development um, and uh, preserve their nuclear strategic deterrent as much as much as long and as, and as much as possible. By um, reaching out to the Japanese and becoming less acerbic in terms of the criticism against the Japanese, um, really it charts a, a different diplomatic path forward where they could potentially get some economic aid, uh, aid from the Japanese and achieve those economic objectives that I think that um, the young uh, Chairman Kim is sincerely interested in. And um, at the same time, they can, it, it's a message to the United States that uh, North Korea does have options that the uh, you know, normalization of U.S.-North uh, Korean relations and some kind of uh, denuclearization uh, uh, deal uh, over the long term is maybe not the only path forward. And I think by engaging with Japan, as well as other stakeholders within the region, really sends a strong message to Washington. But isn't this a domestic defeat for Abe to meet Kim Jong-un without conditions? 
Well, I think that um, Prime Minister Abe is in a particular position. Um, he, he dominates the political sphere within within the Japanese context. Um, this is really the only political leader that he hasn't been able to meet with. Um, that uh, meeting with Chairman Kim without uh, any kind of conditions is very similar to what Prime Minister Koizumi did back in, in the early 2000s. If he can meet, they can establish some kind of line of communication. They may be able to find a way to deal with some of the issues that I think the Japanese are also are interested in, and in particular, it's those Japanese citizens that were kidnapped in the late 70s and early 80s and brought to North Korea to, to teach Japanese and, and to really create spies to reinsert back into Japan. Um, so I do think that uh, meeting without conditions is not necessarily a bad thing if in the mid to long term that Japan can achieve some of its objectives. Um, in terms of denuclearization, that uh, puzzle, it remains to be uns- uh, uh, unsolved, and I think that Japan cannot uh, work alone. It's going to have to work with the United States and other stakeholders within the region. But with the issue of abductees, North Korea thinks it has been resolved. We really don't know, and I think uh, North Korea's track record is to use these kinds of issues as um, leverage to extract concessions, whether it's um, energy resources, uh, food resources, or other kinds of uh, resources that they need to keep their economy going and, and to placate the elite. So we just don't know if, if all those um, you know, kidnapped Japanese are, are gone, if they're still living. Um, and um, I think the North Koreans can continue to, to use that, that leverage to uh, ensure that the Japanese um, do open up their pocketbook and, and provide some aid when the North Koreans are, um, really do need that, that financial aid. And I think right now um, the sanctions are biting um, and the North Koreans are trying to find a way out of, of these heaven sanctions that have been um, you know, put on the North Koreans since 2017. And um, engaging with the, the Japanese is, is a possible way to do that. Stephen Nagy there, a senior associate professor at the International Christian University. And you're listening to Japan in Focus on ABC News Radio. It's been revealed postgraduate students in Japan are finding it increasingly hard to secure work in academia. The national newspaper Asahi Shimbun brought the issue to light this month after a prominent award-winning researcher took her own life. The Australian National University's Dr Tessa Morris-Suzuki says the casualisation of university positions in Japan has made life in academia very difficult. There are a wide range of challenges for postgraduates, particularly those who are doing doctorates in the humanities and social sciences. Uh, because they're finding that it's extremely difficult to get good employment when they complete their doctorates. Um, Getting a university job is a real challenge, and if they do manage to get a university job, it's very likely to be a casual short-term job, uh, which may you know, end after a couple of years and then they go back on the job market again. We'll talk about that job security in a moment, but this article focuses on a very tragic story. Is it an isolated incident? What are the underlying problems here? Well, that particular story is certainly a very tragic one and there may have been, you know, particular personal circumstances there, but it's not entirely isolated. Uh, There have been, you know, other tragic stories uh, quite similar to that one. And there are certainly many stories of young people who go in, try to go into academic careers in the humanities and social sciences and are just forced to give up in the end and um, abandon, you know, research on something that they really love and on which they're very highly qualified. 
Traditionally, you know, if you go back 20 or 30 years, um, not many people did take doctorates in Japan, and many eminent professors didn't have doctorates. Um, but then increasingly, you know, because it's kind of the international norm for academics to have doctorates, um, the Japanese government encouraged a lot of universities to set up postgraduate programs. Uh, but then uh, there just you know, haven't been the jobs at the end of the day for, for all of the people who come out of those programs. You mentioned the casualization of university positions. Are we increasingly seeing this happen at Japanese universities? Yes, it's a big problem. And again, it, it, that's not unique to Japan. So that's happening um, to some extent in Australia. It's happening in, in many parts of the world. Uh, but universities are trying to deal with budgetary problems and shortages of state funding uh, by increasingly giving people short-term positions if they make positions available at all. And I've certainly heard anecdotal stories from friends in Japan of you know, universities, particularly perhaps some of the, the less prestigious private universities, um, offering, you know, two or three-year contract positions to young researchers with a sort of vague notion that maybe it will become permanent. But then the um, researchers or the, the university teachers who go into those positions find that at the end of that contract, it's never renewed because it's cheaper and more flexible for the university to end the contract and have a new lot of starter um, academics who are on lower salaries. So obviously, you know, some people do give up an academic career and go into other positions, but it's particularly difficult in Japan because large corporations in Japan and things like government ministries like to hire uh, graduates fresh out of undergraduate programs. So they have a distinct hiring season where they try to hire the pick of the crop of new undergraduates. Dr. Tessa Morisuzuki there, Professor Emerita of Japanese History at ANU. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you're in Japan, you can go to the Ministry of Health and Welfare website. The Rugby World Cup is only four months away and the event's organisers have started to urge Japanese host cities to be prepared for the spike in tourists, including stocking up on a certain something, as Tokyo-based journalist Daniel Hurst explains. It relates to beer and specifically the fear that there might not be enough for all of the fans and spectators. The Rugby World Cup is due to begin in September and it's the first time that this tournament has been held in Asia and more than 400,000 fans are expected to travel here from overseas to cheer on their teams. And as I mentioned, the organising committee has been dealing with bread and butter issues such as making sure venues are ready. But as part of that, they've been concerned about the volume of thirsty fans who might uh, need that thirst quenched. So it's not just an issue of whether there's enough beer in the stadiums themselves where the matches will be held, but also whether there's enough in the bars and restaurants that will be near the stadiums in the host cities. And that's because a lot of these host cities are regional cities. That's right. There are 12 host cities across the country. Some are bigger than others. You know, not all of them have huge experience in large numbers of tourists. Others do. Um, but it's, it's essentially about the, the sheer large number of people all coming at once to these places. 
and the fact that bars and restaurants in those cities are really going to need to dramatically increase the amount of beer that they have on in stock. So what does it mean to ensure that availability is there, 24-hour, around-the-clock service? What exactly? Well, it's, it's really an educational thing for the business operators. The organising committee has been holding briefing sessions in the host cities where they've been talking about all range of things to do with preparation, but to make sure that the that those uh, business operators are ready for the influx and that they're ready to order in more supply. And I guess it's interesting to, to sort of think about how much extra beer is needed. It's impossible to predict exactly, but if we look back to how much was consumed at the Rugby World Cup uh, the last time in 2015 in England, um, I've read that 1.9 million litres of beer uh, was consumed throughout the tournament, including 1.3 million litres at the game venues themselves. And there was a test run in October last year in Yokohama where there was that latest low cup match between New Zealand and Australia. And I won't mention the result, <laughs> but uh, that match was a sort of test run to make sure there was enough beer on hand. And an official of that stadium in Yokohama told the Asahi newspaper that a spectator typically drinks one glass of draft beer during a soccer match. So they found that rugby uh, fans drink four to six drinks per person. So that's just some of the experiences that they've taken on board and uh, encouraging the business operators to be aware of. I guess, too, the Rugby World Cup is an opportunity to also spruik Japanese beverages. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, there'll, be an official, um, <laughs> there'll be an official beer supplied at all the stadiums, and that's Heineken. So that's not necessarily spreading uh, awareness of Japanese products. But mm. out, certainly outside of the stadiums, uh, there'll be plenty of people who'll be trying sake for the first time. They'll be trying um, other <laughs> things. And I guess an opportunity to also spruik those um, beverages like, as you mentioned, sake, because domestically the number of people consuming sake has dropped drastically. Young people are not drinking sake anymore. That's right. And um, I actually went to Kyoto last year and worked on a story about this very issue. A lot of the sake breweries are looking overseas to increase their exports overseas because it's the only way they can survive given the drop in domestic so I'm sure there'll be a lot of businesses trying to cash in on the opportunity and raise their profile while they have uh, the world's attention on them. And that goes for the Olympic next year as well. Tokyo-based journalist Daniel Hurst there. And that's all for Japan in Focus for this week. Ciao, matane. See you next time.